This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In the fall, they were in limestone. Ted had too many incompletes to graduate, and their room was stacked with books for unwritten papers. He was anxious to be done, though he had another three years of law school if he went. He was no longer sure. He toyed with running for national office, though he complained that students for a democratic society lived in a world of acronyms that no one outside it could decipher. The next day, it would be union organizing the next divinity school in a ministry for social change, and the next law school again. Or maybe he would enlist and go to Vietnam. Hi, this is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Lisa Carius, author of What a Wonderful World This Could Be. It's 1962 when Alex, a 15-year-old living in a college town with an inattentive and uncaring mother, poses for Kendrick, a 27-year-old photographer who later publishes a book of his Alex photos. She thinks she might love Kendrick, who teaches her about photography, but then fascinating college student Ted comes along. The Vietnam War is raging, and Alex, who has become a photographer herself, marries Ted, who wants to live communally and work as an anti-war activist. Alex and Ted are both being watched by the FBI when Ted suddenly disappears for 11 years. Now it's 1982, and Alex has to decide who she wants to be. Hi, Lee. Thanks for joining me today. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. So how did you come to write this novel, and how much of it is based on your personal experience? I actually started this novel a long, long time ago, I uh, The catalyst for it was actually Kathy Wilkerson, one of the two women who survived the weatherman Greenwich Village townhouse bombing in 1970. Her family owned the townhouse. So she was one of the two women who escaped and went into the underground. And 10 years later, she turned herself in. And it just blew my mind because my life had changed so much over that decade. And I immediately started thinking about not what her life might have been like underground, but what about the lives of the people she left behind? What, how do you feel when somebody who's disappeared 10 years ago suddenly reappears? And I think one of the reasons I thought that was that I felt a little bit left out in the late 60s because I got married right out of college and I went to work in an office um, I was at Indiana University, 
Dunmeadow was right around the corner from my office where they had all the protests and everything was going on. But offices had uh, dress codes for women in those days. So on my lunch hour, I'd go over to Dunmeadow. But everybody knows real radicals don't wear pantyhose. So I never felt like I fit in. I felt instead like I went home and watched the story of my generation unfold on the TV news that night. Mm, and mm, so, so interesting. That feeling of, of being left behind, left out, was sort of my point of intersection with the material. Uh, I was very curious about the material because it was something I felt left out of, but that was my point of intersection with my main character because she's involved, but a little bit off to the side also. Right. So let's get back to that later. I want to start by asking, why is nobody alarmed when the 27-year-old professor starts a relationship with your 15-year-old protagonist? I think one reason is that times were different. We weren't as aware of sexual abuse in those days as we are now. Uh, the other reason, of course, is that her mother, the Alex's mother, uh, chooses not to make a fuss about it, uh, wants to, to keep it under wraps, just doesn't want to be embarrassed. And, uh, and they live in a neighborhood full of university people, and everybody just kind of turns a blind eye. Mm. So... The 27-year-old Professor Kendrick teaches college art, and he, and he teaches Alex how to be a photographer, and he makes yes. her feel loved, right? Does that make up for the fact that she's 15 and he's 27? No. No, and he, he grows a lot over the course of, of the novel. Much later, he realizes how very unforgivable what he did was he knows at the time that it's wrong but he does it anyway because they genuinely do fall in love uh, despite the age difference mm -hmm. and he remains very loyal to her with no strings attached for all the years after she's left him until she kind of gives him an opening uh, and so he he does atone for what he's done. And he, let's talk, uh, go ahead. Let's talk about the book he published. How was that, how'd that happen? That was actually where, where I was going. He is in the tradition of an awful lot of male artists, painters and photographers who used their wives or lovers or their families as their subjects. So he is, she becomes a kind of muse to him. He photographs her over and over again, and he does fall into that tradition. So it doesn't really hit him until later how very exploitative that was. Mm-hmm. Can you say something about Alex's family? The family that she is born into just 
basically doesn't exist. Um, she's illegitimate. Her mother has had an affair with her father. Uh, she speculates later that the reason her mother didn't have an abortion was that she hoped that having the child would have some power over the father, that uh, her mother was actually in love with him and he wasn't in love with her and it didn't work out. And so she's left with this child that she doesn't want and basically ignores. As soon as Alex is big enough to ride a bicycle, if she's hungry, she goes to the IGA and gets something to eat. Her mother just absolutely ignores her. It's heartbreaking. Um, and you uh, tell the story without judgment, I think. Well, Alex is the point of view character, even though it is third person. And I think she is very repressed in many ways and holds off on judgment. She she is very aware of the fact that she was not loved. She is even kind of embarrassed by it, that she was the girl no one could love, despite the fact that she's this extraordinarily beautiful child and beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. So uh, moving on in her life and in the book, why does Alex follow Ted even before she meets him? What about him beguiles her? I, I think there's a complex answer to that. Part of it is that Ted is himself an extremely handsome and charismatic character. He's just mesmerizing. And she falls under his spell even before she meets him. That night that she sees him on the subway, something about his image just fixes itself in her brain and she's just obsessed with it. Uh, on a probably not fully conscious level, she realizes that she is so psychologically damaged by her childhood, by the fact that no one loved her, that no one took care of her, that she will never be able to grow up uh, because she's living in the world of her own sorrow, her own psychological prison, unless she gets out of it. And Ted offers her a way out of it because he's concerned about the world. He, he wants to naively save the world. And she sees that in many ways as an opportunity to get outside of herself and to get outside of her own problems. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about why Ted and Alex want to live in a collective? It's Ted's idea. It's certainly not her idea. She doesn't even know he has that in mind when she agrees to go back to the Midwest with him. And he has this notion of a kind of grassroots movement amongst the poor. He's He's been a volunteer, a white volunteer, in the summer of 1964 in Mississippi, which was nicknamed Freedom Summer, the summer that the three civil rights workers were murdered in Mississippi. And he's, he's smart, and he realizes that he's performed the job he was needed to do. The reason they needed the white kids down there was to get a couple of them killed so that the world would pay attention. Because if James Cheney, the black 
of civil rights murder, the black civil rights worker who was murdered was the only one who was murdered, it wouldn't even have been made the local news. But because two white men were murdered with him, it made international news. And that was really what the white kids were doing down there. They didn't know it, but he realizes that and he realizes that civil rights is over for white people, that black power is coming and the war comes along and gradually they move into the anti-war movement. But before they do that, he has this notion of doing grassroots community organization amongst a poor white community. Mm-hmm. Um, you had spoken about the Weathermen in your introduction. How do some of the members of Ted and Alex's collective end up joining the Weathermen? That is such an interesting question because one of them who ends up joining, Matt, is when we first meet him in the novel, this very sweet kid who's playing Michael Road, the boat ashore on his guitar. Uh, He's really not very political. He's kind of naive. And as Stacy, who becomes his girlfriend, puts it, he's um, he's too too sweet to be smart. Uh, But he ends up becoming amongst the most radical of them all. And he's one of the weathermen who's still missing at the time that Ted surfaces, at which time many of them had come up. Many of them came up almost as footnotes, hardly noticed. Kathy Wilkerson was noticed, of course, because the bombing had stunned the country. And so her surfacing, she had been on the FBI's most wanted list, uh, her surfacing caught everyone's attention also. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Stacy kind of follows Matt. He's her boyfriend. Uh, and uh, she's also the daughter of a leftist lawyer. So she, she's she been a kind of red diaper baby. And she is, uh, she falls into the trap of rigid ideology, uh, like the others who join Weathermen did, and the characters in my novel who do did. So that, that whole activism, I have a question. What could you explain why that generation, that group, your characters, why they thought demonstrating was the way to change the culture? I think they had an overinflated sense of their significance. There used to be a joke in Weatherman that your father had to be a millionaire in order for you to join. Many of them came from great privilege. And so there was a sense of entitlement among Mm -hmm. so many of them. And that's certainly the case with Ted Neal, Alex's husband. He doesn't join Weatherman. He doesn't fall into the trap of rigid ideology like uh, Leah and Cal and Stacy and Matt do. But I think they they have a real sense of their importance and also the sense of numbers because the anti-war movement was huge and this sense of betrayal. I mean, I think since Watergate, people have grown up 
expecting the government would be corrupt. But that generation didn't grow up that way. They didn't expect the government to be corrupt. And when they discover that the top brass have been lying about Vietnam, uh, they feel so betrayed. Right. You uh, bring up 1968 in Chicago. I'm a Chicagoan. I live in the city, very close by. And I was there that night when uh, during the convention, but I was a kid. I was with my family. Can you say more about your take on that? Yes, I, um, I'm actually a native of Chicago myself. I didn't really grow up there, but I was born in Chicago on the, on the south side. And when I was five, we moved across the state line to northern Indiana. I was actually on vacation in Massachusetts when that uh, convention took place. And I was camping with my first husband. So, of course, we didn't have a TV. And we had to find some place where we could watch the convention on TV. And the place that we found was a Chinese restaurant on Cape Cod. Imagine watching that convention in a Chinese restaurant with the Chinese um, servers and owners staring at the TV just in absolute disbelief at what's going on. Yeah. Um, so I, I was not there, but I certainly did my homework on what happened there. And that was one of the challenges in writing this book. I can't just say, oh, well, my characters went to Selma. They went to the March on the Pentagon. They went to Chicago and they got hit on the head and it changed the way they thought. I had to do those scenes, but those scenes are already so familiar because there was so much journalistic coverage of them. Uh, they've been written about so, so much that they've become cliches. And the challenge was to make them mine, to make them feel fresh and real and experienced by my characters in a way that people haven't read before. Mm -hmm. When Ted and Alex finally leave for New York City, why are they of interest to the FBI? Because of the collective that they were in. Several of the members join Weatherman, and Weatherman takes over their collective, and they are suspected of some bombings, particularly an ROTC HUD. And so the FBI is tailing uh, Alex and Ted, uh, especially Ted, because they, they want information. And when he learns that he's going to be forced to testify, uh, that he can't take the fifth, because when you say, I'm not going to answer that question in case I incriminate myself, that basically means I'm incriminating myself. I'm, you know, I have something to hide. And, uh, and he's, he's lost his followers, his, his, He's a very privileged character who renounces his privilege. He's uh, in rebellion against his parents, uh, against everything they represent, and he can't understand why they don't accept that. And Alex and I, the author, are sort of like, duh, you expect your parents to go along with you? Uh, grow up. But mm -hmm. 
he really can't accept that. And he has been this charismatic leader, but he gets sort of pushed to the side once people start becoming more radical than thou. And when he loses his followers, he falls apart. And then there's a scene between them, uh, and the subject isn't entirely political, but he says something, and it's personal, and he says, don't you believe me? And she says, no, even though she does. And that is a turning point for him. He's lost his followers. She was his big follower. I mean, she followed him from the subway home. Uh, one of her enormous attractions to him from, from the beginning. And so when he loses his disciples uh, and he's going to be for, forced to betray some pin, principles and either lie or say what he knows about the people that they were in the collective with, he, he just loses it and he runs. Why doesn't he take her with him when he goes into hiding? Because she has said she doesn't believe him. Mm. I think he might not be sure that she would go with him. Um, because she's come to that realization. When she and Stacy have the argument about joining Weatherman, she realizes that even if Ted had chosen to join Weatherman and stay in the collective, she would have gone. Uh, and that that's the moment to me when she really grows up, when she comes into her own. And I think he has an unconscious sense of that. Mm -hmm. So Lee, what did you most enjoy about writing this book? I think everyone who writes fiction, if they're honest, at the very bottom line is we're people who want more than one life. And writing fiction is one way to get it. So I told you that I felt like I had been left behind in the 60s. So I write this book. And what you write, in a way, becomes what you remember. And so writing this book gave me the experience that I thought I wanted when I was 21, 22 years old. And working in an office and watching everybody else seem to have all the fun out there demonstrating. Oh, that's lovely that you did that. You, you lived, it was like you lived a dream. So what are you working on? <laughs> Sorry. Well, it, except the first thing you learn when you start writing fiction is that, yeah, you get to have another life, but it better not be a perfect life because if it is, you don't have a story. So. Oh, right. So you don't get exactly the life you wanted, but you get something. Something. So what are you working on next? I am working on a memoir that is primarily about my mother. Uh, and it includes a lot of photographs. It includes the letters my father wrote to my mother in 1941. He was a merchant marine, so their courtship was largely epistolary. And so I've, I've been dealing with a lot of technical issues, like how to paste the pictures, get them sized right, paste them in the right places where I want them in the text, get the scans of my father's letters 
uh, sized correctly because, of course, he wasn't writing with an eight and a half by 11 scanner in mind. Mm. Uh, so so I've, I've been de- working on it rather slowly because there are so many challenges of a kind that I've never faced in anything I've written before that are just pure technical issues. Interesting, though, and what a lovely tribute to your parents. Anyway, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, it was wonderful talking to you, and thank you so much for uh, having me, for reading my book, and introducing it to other people. I really appreciate it.